0: All right, back again. This time we're gonna be talking about Immanuel Kant's idea of transcendental idealism, which, uh, I'm scared to do, but we gotta do it, we gotta do it. So this is coming out of Immanuel Kant's first critique, The Critique of Pure Reason. And I love this book very much, but it's, I don't understand it. Uh, I'll just be frank. Um, and I don't think it's just my fault. Uh, there are so many debates that go on about it, you know, what Kant is on about, and all that. And for that reason, I'm not I really want to emphasize this is not the last word on what Kant means by transcendental idealism. I'm just trying to present what I think Kant is saying. So I'm just trying to be faithful to him. Now, I want to say as a kind of disclaimer, I'm not going to cover the entire book here. But there are some kind of foundational things that are present in the book that I want to lay out before giving you know the full account of transcendental idealism. Now, before jumping into that, if you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe, like, share, that'd be great. If you can contribute monetarily, you can do that through uh, Patreon or PayPal. That would be greatly appreciated. But of course, take care of yourself first. You can find this in podcast form, anywhere we get podcasts pretty much. Uh, there'll be links for all of that in the description. I'd like to thank everyone who has contributed to me who've helped keep this going so that I can keep doing it for a long time to come. So transcendental idealism is a fancy term and I want to say it has absolutely nothing to do, well it's, let me, I want to say that if we take either of these terms in themselves, that is transcendental and idealism, they don't mean what we might assume them to mean or associate with them. For example, transcendental for Kant has nothing to do with transcendence. It has nothing to do with leaving the terrestrial sphere or the physical plane into some supersensible metaphysical Uh, realm that somehow escapes all human intuition and understanding. And by idealism, he doesn't mean some kind of like ideal city or state or, or some kind of ideal system or ideology. It has nothing to do with that at all. Transcendental idealism is concerned instead with viewing the world as true in itself but recognizing that the truth of the world is inextricably tied to humans and their capacity to experience the world. Now, let me explain what the hell I mean by that. At the beginning of the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant lays out in a pretty famous chapter called The Transcendental Aesthetic, he lays out that outside of human beings seem to exist objects. And these objects seem to come to us through our senses. So through seeing, hearing, uh, tasting, touching, uh, smelling, we get some kind of sense of the world, or we experience the world through our senses. So Kant's like, hmm, if that's the case, then we can't really say that any of our senses are accurately taking in that external object. It's not as though when I see something, my eyeballs have any relationship to that thing. I must, as a human, just be doing the best I can through my senses of making sense of that object. So he says that because of that, we only have a connection to the object as an appearance, that is, as it appears to us, which is what he calls the phenomenon. Now, he contrasts to that the thing that exists beneath the object, because he says, well, okay, because we can have a kind of experience with the object, we can sense it, be it through sight or sound or, or taste or whatever, because we can sense it, then there must be be something there, but the way that we engage with it is not true to the thing itself as far as we know. We only know it in terms of our own subjective experience of it. So this can explain why, you know, two different people hear uh, Yanny or Laurel or two different people here or see like on that dress like uh, gold and white or black and blue or something or just how any people have different experiences of the world. Some people don't like to eat mushrooms. Does that say anything universal about mushrooms? No. But because we only experience the world through our senses, we only have I guess individual experiences of them. So what makes our experiences of the world possible seems to be innate. We seem to have a capacity to engage with the world. And the world exists, for Kant, <laughs> as a structure within space and time. So every one of these objects that we engage with, every one of these people you know that we engage with exist within space and time. And as a thought experiment, you can try and, you know, dissociate an object from space and time, and you'll find you won't be able to do it. Everything has to exist within space and time. Now, space and time don't exist out there. They are, in for all intents and purposes, phenomena as well. But they are interesting for Kant because we can't even necessarily experience them we can't look at space and, and touch space, but it is there. And we have to know it's there in order to be able to tell the difference between any two things at all. So the only reason I can tell you know, one object from another is that there's space in between them. And if we're looking at the same object, that I can tell an object might change over the course of it within space is if it also changes within time. So that is why we need to have some kind of conception of it a priori, that is, we can reason that we have this capacity for um, for a recognition of space and time without necessarily saying that they exist naturally or they exist independently of humans. When Kant says that he's looking at something transcendentally, which he doesn't say, he just, you know, says transcendental, when he puts forward a transcendental argument, What he is arguing is, and hardcore, you know, philosophers out there will shoot me for saying this, he is trying to get at the truth of the thing. So instead of saying, okay, uh, there are all these objects in the world, and let me parse through these objects and try to find their truth, he thinks that that's total hogwash. You can't get anywhere doing that. Instead, he wants to put forward a transcendental argument which for him means he's going to look at the truth of the thing, and that is that the thing doesn't exist for us in itself. The thing instead only comes to us as an appearance. So a transcendental engagement with a thing means not only an engagement with the thing as an appearance, as a phenomenon, but also the mechanisms within our mind that make cognition of that thing possible. Now, he calls this the transcendental logic or the transcendental analytic, which is the part of the book in which he lays out the very specific mechanisms that go on in here, what he calls the categories, the various faculties, that allow us to make sense of the world. And I'm not going to go into all of them here. I've done the entire book, and I want to say I've done it very poorly, but I've covered this entire book. Um, on my channel so you can go and find that but he is laying out through his transcendental approach that things aren't necessarily separate the thing out in the world doesn't exist independently of us as though it transcends the world it is part of us it is part of the world and these things are intertwined in that we have uh, they don't exist in themselves they exist as appearances for experiencing beings or beings that experience them. Without using this approach, without adopting a transcendental approach, Kant says that we run the risk of committing sophistical illusions. Now, I just want to give one example of this because he goes through four, but he considers the possibility of freedom. So he's like, okay, if I use pure reason, that is I don't think about the world as phenomena. I instead think that I'm going to sit in my chair and I'm going to somehow, with my mind, transcend the physical world and prove God. And he has this, this funny slight of... God, I can't remember who. Um, but he there's this one philosopher who pre- presents like 12 proofs for the existence of God. And Kant is like, if it's a proof, don't you only need one? Why do you, why do you need 12? But anyways, that's neither here nor there. So Kant says, if you just sit in a chair and try to imagine or try to reason with your mind beyond the physical world, you are going to fall into illusion. So the example, one of the examples he gives is trying to prove the existence of God. So this is an interesting one for him because the existence of God would prove, and this might seem counterintuitive, but for him, it would prove that freedom is possible, which might seem strange. So someone might say, "Well, no, the existence of God would mean that everything is predetermined because God sets out uh, a plan. If we take God to mean the all, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, um, you know, being, then how can Kant claim that God equals freedom?" He says that everything in the phenomenal world follows the principle of cause and effect, which is a transcendental argument for him because it's fundamentally true, and it's not, you know, bracketing off the world of experience to try to pursue some pure reason, which is why this book is called the Critique of Pure Reason. It considers the physical world, you know, as a thing in itself. So the whole world is organized by the law of cause and effect, which is pretty true. You can't really deny it. It would be impossible for any of us to think of an effect that didn't have a cause, that wasn't caused by anything. So Kant says that the only thing that would fit that criterion is God itself. So if there was a God, that would mean that there was a point in which... Uh, or a point or an effect that emerged that wasn't produced by anything else. God would then be a moment that was free from the chain of cause and effect. Because Kant believes that if everything follows the law of cause and effect, then we aren't really free because we're always determined by some previous instance that sets the limits on what we can possibly do. Only God would break free of that. So if we use pure reason, then it seems perfectly plausible that there's a god a beginning in time that sets the conditions for all possible causes and effects but that also sets the conditions for freedom now either that is the case or god doesn't exist and instead all we have is an infinite series of causes and effects in which you know we can't have any freedom because you know there wouldn't have been that one point in which we saw that freedom was possible so we can't prove Through this example, with pure reason, if you know, if God exists, if there is a beginning in time, if freedom exists, or if you know time time is infinite, space and time are are infinite, or the chain of cause and effect is infinite. So he's like, why even bother considering that? Let us focus instead on the capacity of humans to even, you know, have pure reason. What is it that makes reason possible? And that's essentially sets the tone for what he means by transcendental. Now, additionally, we're, we have the term idealism. Now, idealism is the idea, and he's really poking at Descartes here, who says that, you know, I think therefore I am. Descartes, who's like, uh, I don't know if the external world exists. All I can be sure of is that I exist because I can think of myself thinking. So Descartes, to give a little bit of an exposition into that, uh, and I've done his thing on here too, so you can go find that, the Meditations on First Philosophy, I think it was called. Descartes said, well, I can't be sure of anything existing in the world, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use doubt to doubt everything and what he found was that if you take away everything if you doubt everything what you are left with is your thinking being you know the thing that was necessary to doubt in the first place you can't doubt yourself away you can't doubt away your mind doubt away your mind because then we arrive at an impasse because that would require you to be using your mind to send it away, which would be impossible. So Kant comes along, and he's like, well, Descartes, how can you claim to do away with the external world like that? How can you claim that your capacity for thinking somehow is removed from the external world, somehow is removed from experience? How can I think at all unless I've experienced, which would have depended upon my engagement with the external world. So that's what Kant wants to do here. He wants to show that the world is, it it is there, but it is there as it is attached to us as things that perceive the world. So let me give the account that Kant gives of transcendental idealism. He says this, I understand by the transcendental idealism of all appearances, the doctrine that they are altogether to be regarded as mere representations and not as things in themselves. And accordingly, that space and time are only sensible forms of our intuition, but not determinations given for themselves or conditions of objects as things in themselves. These things don't exist outside of human perception. They don't exist outside of human uh, experience. And so because of that, we can only accrue a certain amount of knowledge of the thing as an appearance, but not of a thing as a thing in itself, which would be a transcendent idea, one that escapes, escapes the limitations of the human mind or of human cognition. So that's where you know, pure reason goes wrong. It doesn't recognize that there is a limit and it tries to go beyond itself, and Kant opposes to that transcendental idealism to take as the possibility of human cognition things in the world, which sets the tone for what he'll come to do. And you'll find this, uh, these episodes appearing on this channel in a few, I guess in a couple weeks from now, um, or when this video goes live, his second critique, the critique of practical reason, in which he shows, or he applies this idea this idea about things in the world as themselves, that is, as they exist to us in experience, not not as themselves, but as things that exist as they appear to us, how taking that into consideration might prove the existence of God and freedom, which he said we couldn't prove with pure reason. And yeah, that pretty much is the most basic introduction to this term. uh, But I think I said the necessary things. If not, I really want to encourage you to, you know, tell me, you know, contribute, uh, leave a comment or a nasty email if I, you know, did anything really wrong here. I think I was pretty faithful to it. Um, But like I said, I I didn't cover everything and this book is really long, so you really got to read the entire thing if you want the full grasp of it. But on that note, be sure to like, subscribe, all that. Uh, Leave a review on the pod, Apple, or what fucking podcast thing you use, um, because that helps me too. Take care.